Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, for giving us the gift that is today. For your word says, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today. Well, it's today, Father, and the time is now, as per your perfect plan from eternity past. Our days are numbered here on earth, and only you know when our time will be, when we finally meet our Lord face to face. So for now, Father, our prayer is that we obey your will, that we find ourselves always intent on seeking the things that you deem righteous. We pray that our ministry, regardless of its natural abilities, be supernaturally united in purpose with you, and that your power be manifest in us as we press on into a world that hates your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray that we realize your Spirit's guidance in order to maximize your glory. We ask that you bless this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls, and may it challenge each of us as we hear your calling upon our lives. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit we do pray. Amen. Again, this morning's message title, a continuation in this fantastic foundational series on the gospel, salvation, and sanctification. This is part 10. We've been doing a lot of work lately on the identification of what we might call faith fruit. Fruit that comes from real faith, in other words. Faith fruit, for lack of a better term. And the Spirit's brought up the following words from our Lord on a multitude of occasions. Go to Matthew 12.33. Matthew 12.33. So there's been a lot of work on this topic, I suppose, because the errant Gospels, the watered-down Gospels out there, they do not attach good works. They don't attach fruit. They don't attach things like obedience to our Lord as part of the gospel reality. They say, maybe you will, maybe you won't later on down the line, but just believe this thing and say this little prayer with me and believe these facts. Your heart doesn't have to be changed, in other words. You can still want and desire and stay in the sovereignty of sin but just believe this thing and you will be saved. And that is a lie. Jesus Christ wants you. He wants you to want Him, all of Him. And He is indeed Lord, not just Savior. Matthew twelve thirty three, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. Otherwise, he says, you shall know them by their fruit, etc. The danger with the flesh, and this is the crux of this morning's message, the danger with the flesh is that its first instinct is to look for a lack of fruit in others. So we're on lesson 10. We've been given an awful lot of scripture and principle 
an insight into God's heart on these matters that if you're saved, if you're truly saved, you will bear good fruit, fruit that he deems righteous, not man. The danger, though, is with what the flesh can do with said knowledge. It will take that knowledge and look for ways where they might see a lack of fruit in others so that it, the flesh, can find a way to somehow stratify itself above said others. The Spirit does not want that to happen. So this morning is a bit of a balance statement as a whole. We are not to learn these truths. We do not learn something like the narrow way and say, oh, it's like, remember back in the... Uh, the early 80s, remember the members-only jacket? Remember that? Hey, they're back at Marshall's, by the way, in case you're interested. But members-only. You paid $70 for a flimsy piece of cloth, but it said members-only. And there were few who could afford it. So now you had this stratification thing. Well, the narrow gate, we are not to wear a members-only jacket that says the narrow gate. That is heinous. That is heartbreaking to even think about. But that's what the flesh wants. The flesh is consistently looking for ways to stratify itself against others. If someone's not saved, you don't go, ah, ha, ha. If you're not weeping internally at least, if not externally, then you need to look at your own heart. If you're not broken up about the fact that someone's going to spend all of eternity possibly in the lake of fire, you, my friend, have a problem. You might have the same problem you're judging another person for. So this morning is a bit of a balanced statement. It's not, we're not to get this knowledge and then pervert it into some way to stratify ourselves. So in other words, we ought to always remember Paul's words. Go to Romans 14.4. Romans 14.4. Just to get us situated. Too many people. Why don't we just leave up that stuff to the religious folks? Why don't we leave that up to the uh, religions of the world? those people that are trying to stratify themselves. And you know, most religions, as I've taught, as the Spirit's taught from this pulpit, don't even have a name. Most religions are little cathedrals and little altars and little spires in the soul that somehow you get to sit atop some ivory tower and look down at the rest of the world with your so-called knowledge of doctrines Religions do not need a name, folks. Romans 14.4 Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. In other words, you don't have that right. There's only one judge, and it's not you. So for some of you, I'm confident the topic of Quote, well, now that I have the gospel in full view, what do I do with it as it pertains to others? I'm confident that that question might arise in your soul. Well, the Spirit wants to tell you 
what not to do with it right now. What not to do with it. To guard your souls from unholy thoughts and activities. He wants us to read one of Jesus' parables to drive this point home, by the way. And I'll give you a little background on the wheat and tares. Wheat is the desired crop. Tares look like wheat, but are a type of weed, which means they're bad for the crop. In ancient agricultural times, an enemy would sow tares to destroy someone's livelihood. In other words, you can imagine the owner of a crop goes home for the evening and the enemy at night comes in with a bunch of seed and spreads it and sows it into that field. So in ancient agricultural times, an enemy would sow tares to destroy someone's livelihood. We are true believers in context. Tares are professing believers that never bear any fruit for harvest. So the wheat and the tares might be a church like this one in the analogy. You may have a crop, if you would, and there may be an admixture of believers and unbelievers in that crop. So let's take a look at Jesus' parable again. We're trying to develop what do we do with now this knowledge of the gospel? Do we let the flesh run wild with it and begin to stratify? What do we do? Go to Matthew 13, 24. This is one of Jesus' parables, Matthew 13, 24. And it's very clear what we ought to do, or at least the general approach to it should look like. And you should never, as a rule of thumb, never read too much into parables. Parables are pretty simply stated. I think people get carried away with parables and they get too goofy with it. Matthew 13, 24. Jesus presented another parable to them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. And tares, by the way, do not bear grain or good fruit. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Do you want us then, this is the point, do you want us then to go and gather them up? And that's a picture of the believer even. Do, should we, in other words, should our attitude be to go gather them up, to rip them out by their roots, the tares, since they are potentially harmful to our crop, their weeds? Should we do that thing? But he said, no, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. <clears throat> up here on the board. You may uproot the wheat. Refers to the fact that the roots of the wheat and tares in a field are so intimately intertwined that you may uproot the wheat if you pull the tares. There are always tares, unbelievers in view, among us, often in churches even. So 
So the directive, and again, this is one of Jesus' own parables. Do not, he says, no, do not rip the tares out. Do not attempt to rip the tares out of even a church setting unless they become sowing other things, and then you have to get rid of them. But that's a different tactic. So you may uproot the wheat refers to the fact that the roots of the wheat and tares and fields are so intimately intertwined that you may uproot the wheat if you pull the tares. There are always tares, unbelievers among us, who never bear any fruit, remember? Often in churches, even. Practically speaking, then, this means that you do, you do more damage than good, even to true believers. If you made it your mission in life to uproot all the tares, you would do more damage than good, even. So Jesus said, let them grow up together. If they want to profess to be Christians, if they want to profess to be true believers, listen, you can give them the truth and walk away. At that point, that's between them and the Lord. But your lot in life is not to identify all the tares and rip them out by the roots. You're going to do damage that way. So says the Lord. So Jesus explains, look at verse 30. Allow both to grow together until the harvest, and in the time of the harvest I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. Up here in the board, allow both to grow together. It's not a believer's job to discern who is saved and who isn't. We, can't, we can certainly see their fruit possibly be motivated if we suspect the false gospel, but God only knows. It's not our job, in other words, to call out who we think are the tares. So allow both to grow together. This is God's field. We are fellow workers, but it's God's field. And who knows how you might, in proximity of an unbeliever, affect them. Think of, I think about the, the marriage. People get married uh, as unbelievers, and then maybe one of them becomes a believer. What does the word say? Stay in the marriage. You might actually, quote, sanctify your spouse or your spouse might be sanctified because of your belief. Just to get the same edification his disciples got, let's read Jesus' explanation. Go to verse 36. <clears throat> verse 36. Then he, Jesus, left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the tares... Of the field. And he said, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man, and the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age. That's relative to judgment. And the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks 
and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire. That's relative to the lake of fire. Hell. In that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So in other words, it's not our job to necessarily identify the distinction between wheat and tares. We may suspect it, and if we suspect it by evidence of their fruit or lack of, or poor fruit that's obvious, we might be desired or we might be motivated to give them the gospel. And uh, that might be our situation. The implications are many, aren't they, though? Indeed, they are. On the one hand, you have to deal with the indignation of someone calling your Lord and Savior a farce. On the other, you must have the heart of Christ and be patient with them. You know, the same way He was patient with you. Go to 2 Peter 3.9. 2 Peter 3.9. <clears throat> So again, this is a big old balance statement, folks. And you have to understand, listen, do not, you're supposed to imitate my faith, not mimic my words. I have to hit you very hard sometimes. I only have you for an hour at a time. I have to give you stark truth so that it is driven home. But that's a conversation between you and I. You can't necessarily take my words and repeat them to an unbeliever and make them stumble for the rest of their lives. You have to be able to discern, uh, and we'll get to this, the right thing to say to outsiders. And it's not always the same presentation as you get from the pulpit, do you see? Just because I'm making hard lines in the sand as per Scripture, and those hard lines do exist, does not always mean that it's that straightforward when you're dealing with tares. You're not to judge them and rip them out by their roots because you think, they might be unbelievers based on a lack of fruit that you see. That's between them and the Lord. So you're not here to judge either. And I think about ourselves. Well, how long did it take you, O holy ones? Second Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So how long did it take you, my friends? 20, 30, 40, 50 years? Or how about your spouse or your loved ones? How long did it take them? Aren't you glad God had patience with them too? Then who are we to judge? Only God can see a person's heart. Jesus told another parable equating Saving faith to the foundation of a house. Go to Luke 6.46. Luke 6.46. Only God can see a person's heart. Luke Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? In other words, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you're not actually obedient to the heart? 
your fruit looks like this and that. Remember, these are the same group that says, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And he says, I never knew you. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? That reeks, obviously, of good fruit. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, will show, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. Up here in the board, the flood and the torrent in Luke 6, 46 to 49, the houses represent one's religious life. And remember, religion, we tend, we tend to use religion in the negative connotation, but it's only been perverted. There's nothing wrong with true religion. The Bible talks about that. The, house, the houses represent one's religious life. The rain represents divine judgment. Again, verse 48, He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. So the point up here in the board is that the house on the rock, only the, the house built on the rock, Lord Jesus Christ is the rock, will stand judgment. Note also that the builder dug deep laying a foundation on the rock. And that even that is not a trivial task. Makes me think of how a person must count the cost of being a disciple of Jesus, a la Luke 14, as we've studied. A person who has a foundation, who digs deep, laying a foundation in rock. Well, why don't you try it at home? Go find a rock and try to build a chicken coop on it. But make sure that it's anchored in the rock. You might be there a few days chipping away. Anyways. This rock will stand under judgment. Okay? On the flip side, verse 49, But the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation. And the torrent burst against it, and immediately it collapsed. And the ruin of that house was great. Up here on the board. So we have the flip side, which is the house without a foundation in Christ. Oh, it's still a house, isn't it? It still looks the part, doesn't it? Think of the wheat and the tares. Tares look just like wheat. It's just that they never bear any fruit. And when do we typically see most evidence of our fruit? When we're tested. Faith must be tested. I thought this years ago. That's how you know that you actually have real faith. That when it's put under pressure, it upholds. It stands the test. That's how you actually know. There's a lot of people that can't take any pressure whatsoever, and they've been at the Word of God, so to speak, for years. And they wonder, why do I always crumble under pressure? It's because you have little or possibly no faith. That you have what I would call, I'm going to write a book on this sometime soon, I got to. You have what I call covert arrogance. 
covert arrogance, not the chest-beating kind, the other kind that undermines the power of God and His ability to work wondrous things through you by faith. Ah, shucks, I'm such a loser, and I'm such a this, and ah, shucks. Shut up. I mean it. Shut up. You're the ones who are totally stuck, and you don't even realize it. Because the rest of the world is sitting there, it's okay, Will, it's okay, sweetie, it's okay. These are the people that are built without a foundation. And so when pressure comes, they fail. They have a house, they have a roof, they have windows, they have doors. Oh, they so look the part, the religious part. But then the pressure comes and the judgment comes and they crumble. And unfortunately, that's going to be the destiny of many people who profess to be believers even. They never counted the cost. They just said a few words. They're not even interested in reading their own Bibles or doing their own studying or checking to see if anything's even real. They just want to go to some church and have some guy with well-rounded speaking abilities tell them what the truth is, and that suffices. Or even worse, they just want someone to tell them that they're going to be okay, as if another person can make that distinction. So back to the parable of the two houses, one with a foundation and a rock, one without one. This house without a foundation in Christ up here on the board is incapable of withstanding divine judgment. This alludes to those at the great white throne judgment who will stand on their own merit and be sentenced to the lake of fire. Even so, just like we can't really see a house's foundation, we can't see whether or not a person is saved. What we see is what? We see the structure of the house. We don't see a house's foundation Only God sees the foundation. We aren't to judge the foundation or lack of of others. Only God knows who is saved and who isn't. Believe it or not, that was our intro into this morning's class. But that is how important it is that we not become fleshly over the things that we learn We don't, just because we have truth about the gospel, we don't now become judges of others. And that's why the Spirit gave you those parables, so that you understand that we're to let the wheat and the tares grow together. And He judges. He's the one who decides who goes to the lake of fire and who goes to heaven in the end. And just like the two houses, we know the truth. The one built on the rock stands the test of judgment, The one that's without a foundation gets crushed. But we don't see the foundations. We only see the houses. So we can't do that fleshly thing and become judgmental. That is a very, very ugly thing to become, a judgmental believer. Again, the balance statement from Jesus, he did say this, For the tree is known by its fruit. So even though we 
might not be able to tell the difference between the wheat and the tares. We aren't commissioned to judge whether or not a person's home is built on the rock or the sand, yet we do have the ability to recognize good fruit. It's often, practically speaking, that which comes out of one's mouth. The Bible is not shy about the things that come out of one's mouth. It says those are the things that defile a person even, and that which is in the heart fills the mouth. Amen? So many times it's what comes out of your mouth that is the proof in the pudding. Go to Luke 6.45. Luke 6.45. I'm not saying you can't put your foot in your mouth like Peter used to do. Luke 6.45. The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. So whether we like that or not, we can tell an awful lot about a person by the stuff that comes out of their mouth. What is their speech? Is it gracious or is it judgmental? Is it becoming of Christ or is it what? Becoming of evil. That which fills the heart is what comes out of the mouth. So that's the first place the Spirit suggests you and I look. What's coming out of our mouth? Is it edifying to the church? So reflect for a moment. A true believer isn't interested in belittling unbelievers. Even though they ought never compromise the gospel in their speech. Let me say it again. A true believer isn't interested in belittling unbelievers. That's not Christ's heart at all. Up here on the board, 1 Peter 3.15 But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence, so we know that we cannot compromise the gospel. We know this to be true. May it never be that we compromise the gospel. But standing firm on truth, and then making a point of trying to stratify yourself above others by pushing them down, that has nothing to do with delivering the actual truth, does it? That's just you in your flesh trying to make yourself better than the next person and using something as fundamental as the gospel. I'm saved, you're not. I win, you lose. You used to pick on me in high school, but look at me now. I go to heaven, you go to hell. How despicable is the human being without Christ? How grotesque is the flesh? Give it up, people. Give it up. Take it off, as we learned. Apec duomai. Take it off like, like garbage 
garments. This isn't about you being better. You don't come to church. This is how I know (laughs) a lot of the people that have been in this church for years now. Our last church wasn't exactly highly esteemed, was it? We had a Chinaman beating a walk. I mean, he, I don't like a drum next door. And I got told time and time again, what were we there, DJ, about a year and a half? We were there about a year and a half, right? So we went from this big old church on this beautiful grounds in an antique place to, uh, I don't want to say a hole in the wall because it was nice and it was certainly sufficient by grace. But I was told time and again that a person would not go there, not one person, multiple people, would not go to that church because it was in a strip mall next to a pizza joint, a Chinese restaurant, and a bunch of construction workers. What's that got to do with anything? Well, I want it to be in a nice church because it's not about actually learning the Word of God. It's about me being in a better church. I want a guy with hair on the pulpit. Yep. Without big giant chiclet teeth. Oh, we'll get to you. I don't like that guy. So funny. I always, this is funny. It's not funny, haha, but. You know, there's always those people that you come into contact with from religious institutions. Pick the biggest one in the area if you'd like. And every time I see them at like family gatherings, how many people you got in your church? What's that got to do with anything? I say, last time I challenged them, like, same as last time. Well, how many is that? What's that got to do with anything? Unbelievable. I digress. The point is, we're here for the gospel. If that's not our intent, if we want to just pick up some more doctrines so that we can stratify ourselves as the flesh, then we might have a problem. That's ungodly fruit. Not godly fruit. So again, a true believer isn't interested in belittling unbelievers even though they ought never compromise the gospel in their speech. Here's what our attitude ought to look like. Go to Colossians 4.2. Colossians 4.2. Here's what our attitude ought to look like. If you're curious. If you care about what the Bible has to say. If you're not the person who just noticed that I really do have chiclet teeth and that you can't study under me anymore because I'm not as handsome as you once thought I was. I'm being ridiculous, I know, on purpose. Because it's ridiculous, isn't it? It's ridiculous, but you know that's how people are. You know that's how people are. Maybe I should just get a parade together, get a white Jeep with a piece of plexiglass around it, wave like I'm on a parade, go meet with the UN, go try to meet with Obama, go try to meet with all these other people so that people can be oppressed. I I think I I I saw him. There he is, there he is! It's him. Oh. You joking me? What's this all about anyways? Seriously, I absolve you of your sins. 
Oh. It's disgusting. But that's what the disgusting flesh wants. So God gives it to them. Do you get it? God gives it to them. Gives it to the person. Oh, you want to be that jackass that actually stratifies on the gospel? I'll give it to you. And I'll give you teachers in accordance to your own desires. So says Scripture. Colossians 4.2 We, on the other hand, as believers, Colossians 4.2, devote yourselves to prayer. In other words, shut up. Stop asking everybody in your vicinity, um, I noticed you didn't have any fruit lately. And you should know them by their fruit. Jesus said that. Shut up and pray. If you think someone's not saved, pray. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Be grateful you have truth. Praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned, this is Paul, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Verse 5, conduct yourselves. You want to know? You want to know what it's like with truth? You want to know what you're supposed to do with truth? Conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders, unbelievers, making the most of the opportunity up here on the board, flatly stated, belittling unbelievers is wrong. Again, I have to make hard lines in the sand. I'm a shepherd. I need to make sure that the wolves stay at bay, away from the flock as best as possible by giving you hard line truths. But I don't want you to misplace or misappropriate my passion for said truth by becoming fleshly with it, if that makes sense. Belittling unbelievers is wrong. We are called to Christ-like conduct towards unbelievers. Our conduct is our witness to those outside the faith. Remember your mouth. Our conduct is our witness to those outside the faith. If it is spirit or if it is spiteful, elitist, and condescending, what will they think of Christ? But yet Jesus Christ said, Hey, listen, I'm here to save the sinners, not the righteous. Therefore, I'm going to hang around with the prostitutes and the tax collectors. Huh. Well, which one's you? Are you the Pharisee? who turns their nose down at others, who was unsaved in many cases, or are you like Christ, who's looking for repentant hearts, sinners? If, it's, if your heart is spiteful, elitist, and condescending, what will others think of Christ, unbelievers specifically? 
just as a balance statement. Matthew 7, 6. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet, and turn and tear you to pieces. So we have balance statements. Again, relative to a believer's attitude towards unbelievers in general, verse 5, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, those are unbelievers, making the most of the opportunity. Verse 6, let your, what comes out of the mouth again? Speech. Ah, there it is again. Your mouth, the greatest weapon ever, the tongue. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Well, that's quite an issue of obedience right there. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt. Salt preserves and makes things taste more flavorful, if you would so that you will know how you should respond to each person. That's how you respond. In other words, go to Ephesians 4.29. What does let your speech always be with grace look like? Well, here's some scriptural evidence, if you're interested. Ephesians 4.29. Maybe you should just, you know, keep adding to that litany of... um, grotesque jokes because jokes go over well at the office you know what I'm saying and you know I know I wear the cross and I have a, the, a tattoo on my back you know that spans my whole back of you know the cross and this kind of thing but I can't let go of my jokes I've been working on my act for years I'm gonna let anything unwholesome spew out of my mouth because I really don't care about anybody else I only care that I'm edified. I only want everybody else to think I'm funny and hilarious. So I'll use whatever tactic it takes to be funny and hilarious. <laughs> and all the unbelievers are going, that's what Christians are like? Telling dirty jokes about God knows what? Sometimes publicly, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, what's the, I don't know, all these social things. Half the things that are said publicly by so-called Christians are disgusting. Ephesians 4.29 Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. Let your speech be with grace. Salt. Be like salt. A preserver of Christ's good name. But I'm going to heaven, so what do I care? These are good jokes. This is good material. I can't give this up. You need to look in the mirror, my friend. Where's your heart at? Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification. That means building up according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. Many of you should have that tattooed on your forearm. So every time you're tempted to tell a ridiculous joke or some off-color text, 
or public Facebook post. You ought to read it right off your arm and say, is this with grace? Is this the preservative salt coming through me? Or is my disgusting hole called a sewer pipe called my mouth defaming Christ's good name once again? But I'm funny and people think I'm clever and I'm popular now. Well, good for you. Have fun being an enemy of the cross. Where's your heart, my friend? Because that which fills the heart comes out of the what? The mouth. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. So it seems that today's lesson, again, is one big balance statement for those of you with a tendency towards elitism. Our job is to go out and make disciples. If anything, that makes us lowly. Go to Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. That makes us meek. And if you have sort of a situation with that, you tell me in Scripture where Jesus Christ told a dirty joke. Oh, it's not in there? Ah, my bad. You tell me where Jesus Christ turned water into wine and then said, this is all for me, I'm going to get bombed. And I'm going to get, why does everybody get quiet? I'm going to get bombed and I'm going to tell all kinds of funny jokes and I'm going to be the life of the party. Why does Jesus never depicted like that? Duh. Why do you think it is? And who are we representing down here anyways? Our flesh or Christ? Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The difficulty is that the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are a few who find it up here on the board. So back to this concept of discipleship. Jesus demanded that to become a disciple, one must abandon their ties to the self-life. They must be willing to surrender unconditionally to the Lord. The same requirement exists today. So it is a solemn affront for most people to see how pervasive the Scripture is on these topics of fruit-bearing faith fruit and having speech that's becoming or from a root of grace having a heart that desires nothing more than to edify others the next time you correct somebody why'd you correct them so that you could feel smarter than them or to correct them for their own good 
It's funny, recently I had somebody tell me about how they were correcting a friend, and then when I corrected them, they got mad at me. Isn't that funny how it goes? What was the motivation? Why wouldn't they listen to me then? Jesus demanded that to become a disciple, one must abandon their ties to the self-life. They must be willing to surrender unconditionally to the Lord. The same requirement exists today. The error that some make, especially with those they care about, is brought to the forefront with this point. This is something we've been working out. The Spirit's been working through our souls for a week now. This flesh, it just kills everything. It takes anything pure and good and just mangles it. The Great Commission. We just read it. Where in Scripture does it ever say that we as evangelists ought to be conciliatory? It doesn't. If we water down the gospel, we are injecting human works into God's work of reconciliation. Romans 5.11, 2 Corinthians 5.18-19. This is nothing more than the flesh seeking to do God's work, something that is truly impossible We don't do God's work of reconciliation. We don't save people, even though we use the vernacular, you know, hey, I I evangelized somebody, so I saved somebody today. I mean, I think we've all sort of slipped up and used that language in some way, shape, or form. But the reality is we don't save people. No evangelist, regardless of how gifted they were, has ever saved an individual. So we don't have the right to reconcile people this is nothing more than the flesh seeking to do god's work something that is truly impossible we've studied this phenomenon out a bit in the past i call it control freaks right control freaks are those that are still dominated by the flesh folks with control issues are those who haven't yet stripped apic duomai laid aside colossians 3 9 who haven't yet stripped themselves of the fleshly desire to master, there's that Hebrew word, teshuka, to master those around them. In other words, they spend too much time, possibly even as believers, trying to dominate those around them. Well, that's a fleshly issue, folks. That's not a godly issue at all. They're supposed to be building people up. We just saw that. Whatever comes out of your mouth is meant to edify Not make you feel better about yourself. Not make you feel like you're the one in the know. Not make you feel more elite. None of that garbage. That's all garbage. You see, I took the narrow road. While the rest are out there, you know, like a bunch of losers. I am on the narrow way. That's the flesh, folks. That's an individual trying to control the environment. Folks with control issues are those who haven't yet stripped themselves of the fleshly desire to master those around them. The simple fact is that reconciliation is God's work, not man's. And God doesn't happen to 
like you so much that he'll somehow accept your earnest desire to see someone else saved as payment for sin. Reconciliation is a gift from God alone, not a combined gift. It's not like, you know, hey, you know, I'd really like to get so-and-so this gift, but it's like, you know, $500. I'll go $250. You go $250. Hey, we'll put it in together. Yeah, God's not like that. He doesn't go into, he doesn't go in to gifts with other people. Romans 5.11 in the Amplified. Not only that, but we also rejoice in God, rejoicing in His love and perfection through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received and enjoy our reconciliation with God. Reconciliation is a gift. It's something that we receive from God. Again, that ought to close out any fleshly attempts by those who desire, whose desires outstrip their abilities. Again, the point... The Great Commission. This is what we're supposed to be focusing on. Not trying to, all of a sudden, I'm in the know and now you're not. Now I can start correcting you. Now I'm on the narrow road and you might not be. I see your fruit. It's terrible. Mine's awesome. I'm good. You're bad. I rock. You don't. I win. You lose. That's the flesh, right? It's, des- it's despicable, is it not? How do you take something like, if you truly have? This is another question. How do you take something like salvation and then pervert it into stratification of the flesh. How do we, what in the heck? Is that unbelievable? What was wrong with people? I would argue that there's going to be a lot of people who have done that, who are just professing Christians, and they're going to find out, I never knew you. <laughs> Should have never ate that donut before class. I would argue that. I think that's fair to say. That if that's your attitude, that you think that being saved is some kind of one-up on the world, you might have a problem. It sounds like the flesh just calculating things for its own benefit. That's what it sounds like to me. That doesn't sound like a changed heart at all. That doesn't sound like someone who has Christ's heart. That sounds like someone who has the devil's heart. Our job is simple. We have a commission. Where in Scripture does it ever say that we are evangelists ought to be conciliatory? God's work is the work of reconciliation. I was reflecting on this. If you allow for that kind of error in the gospel, thinking you can somehow reconcile someone even that you really love, just imagine what the rest of your theology will look like. If you can do that with the gospel... What is the rest of your theology going to look like? If you think you have, in other words, the leeway with the gospel, what does the rest of your theology look like? If you can change or morph or modify the gospel, I guess everything's on, right? All bets are off in in terms of the rest of the spiritual life. You can start creating religions and protocols and everything else. In other words, even if the gospel seems too stringent to you right now, the issue isn't how you feel about it. 
It's whether or not your theology is biblical. That's another one of my favorites that I get. See, me and God are tight. And I feel this way about him, and he feels this way about me. But what about the scripture that says that that's actually not right? What about the dogmatic statement of the inspired word of God? So now we have the inspired word of God against your feelings. Well, which one should we stick with here? So getting the gospel right. The fundamental issue is that if you get the gospel wrong, you will end up with a portfolio of doctrines that are skewed somehow. In other words, if, you know, for example, and many of you have read that book I gave you, I'm sure, if turning to the Lord, turning away from the Lordship of sin to the, to the Lord himself is not part of the gospel proper, then where do you put it afterwards? If it's not part of the from faith to faith, if it's not part of the from faith equation, let's call it, well, where do you put it afterwards then? You can put it any way you want, I guess. You can put it somewhere down the line. You can put it over there, you can put it over there. Just believe these words, and then maybe, maybe he'll be your Lord later on. Where do you put things when you subtract them from their rightful place? It's like having a Lego piece. All right, put it back together. Uh-oh, I got a red Lego. I don't even know where it goes. Let's just put that over there for later. Maybe we'll stick it on the side somewhere later. But you got to do something with it because it's in Scripture and it's not going anywhere. What do you do with things that you decide to change from the very core of our faith? What do you do with them? You got to find a home for them somewhere. So they end up showing up in these mangled ways in your theology because theology builds, obviously. Starts with the gospel, and then theology builds off of the gospel. But what happens when you subtracted something from the gospel? Well, I got to put it somewhere. Uh-oh. Otherwise, my theology is incomplete. I'll just put it right there, and it will feel right. So I'll put it right there. We don't have a choice. We have to get the gospel right. The fundamental issue is that if you get the gospel wrong, you will end up with a portfolio of doctrines that are skewed somehow. If you're not convinced by my words, I wholeheartedly encourage you to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Go to Philippians 2.12. Philippians 2.12. You see, I'm not that guy that says, listen to me. Oh, subservient little plebes. I'm not that guy. I'm not trying to be a hero. I'm not trying to be a demigod. I'm not trying to be anything but a bus driver or a waiter. That's as glorious as it gets for me, and I'm happy with that. Trust me, my heart aches enough over you people. I don't need to start worrying about saving you as well or sanctifying you. Philippians 2.12 So I say this, which is scriptural, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now more much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's your job. 
You're your own priest. You represent yourself before God. You work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Again, please hear what the word has to say about all of this. You need to be convinced of it in your own souls. This, or that is precisely what I want for you. Any good shepherd worth their salt would want that for their sheep. I want you to be convinced in your own souls. I want you to have your own convictions. I don't want you to look at me as some kind of a guru. I want you to look at me as a guide, as a man who was set aside from eternity past for your own good, to give you lessons like this, to be supernaturally empowered, to guide you a certain way. But I'm telling you, the same person who's filled with the same spirit right now. I want you to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I want you to be convinced. Now, here's the problem. The fundamental issue is that most of you won't. Won't spend any real time investigating Scripture on your own. Even though the Spirit's got me up here encouraging you, day in and day out, to do so like a broken record. Most of you is like, la, 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 like the teenage. La, 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 la. Yes, Dad. That's uh, texting, by the way. <laughs> Bill's like, my phone's got an antenna on it. <laughs> I, mean, I do his dial. -in. He wears it with a battery pack on his back, like a backpack. I wonder why you're tired, Bill, carrying around that old thing. So I submit to you, if you're unsettled or confused or the, the gospel seems somehow too stringent or something like that, who's to blame? If you're confused by any of this, who's to blame? Go to Acts 17.10. We have some nice, a wonderful example in Scripture. Acts 17.10. There's no room for blaming, folks. You are responsible for yourself. Acts 17.10. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. They were doing their thing, in other words. Now, these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. Oh, there it is, folks. You mean the people in the church actually had to examine scriptures daily on their own? Oh my God! Can you imagine that? That that's actually part of the inspired word of God? Oh my God, I've been ignoring the word of God. Yeah, you have. It's not just Pastor Ed trying to control you. What do you think I've been teaching? What does it mean to work out your own 
salvation with fear and trembling. Please go to the scripture yourself. If you have a problem with me, instead of calling up your friend, do you believe what he's saying? I think we should leave. This guy's on crack. I think he's been smoking crack. Look at his eyes. Look at him. Instead of doing that ridiculous thing, instead of calling your friends and telling each other how you feel about what's being taught, why don't you get your butts in front of a Bible and read it? Like I've been saying for God knows how long. The only people that laugh are the people that do it. Why not? There's your example, the Berean example, folks. What else do you want from me? Seriously. Some of you behind my back throw stones at me with each other. Casting doubt among other sheep even. It's disgusting. Berean integrity. If you're going to cast stones, you better have real stones to throw. You better have scripture, my friend. Berean integrity. The Berean Jews respectfully heard the truth from Paul. However, instead of simply accepting his words at face value, they took the time to examine the scriptures for themselves. Imagine that. If unbelievers can do this, they weren't saved until afterwards. If unbelievers can do this, every believer ought to be like this. Otherwise, you believers are being shamed by unbelievers. And I would definitely argue that. Definitely. The mo- <laughs> Many times, there are people out there that get into, that will scrap with a guy like me that are actually unbelievers. And they know Scripture more than many of you. And they're unbelievers. And they know more Scripture than many of you have actually spent more time in, their own, in, the, in the Bibles that they own be it for the wrong reason, they know more scripture than many of you. Could that possibly be? And that same group of individuals in a church are the same ones who are that quick to throw stones at the guy behind the pulpit. And yet they haven't followed this example on the board. How dare you? How dare you? Think about it. So you have a good example, don't you? But I don't feel that way. It doesn't feel right. Jesus loves me. It doesn't feel right that God would send these people to the lake of fire. It doesn't feel right that Uncle Jimmy is going to go to the lake of fire. Such a good guy. It doesn't feel right. Too bad. What would you like me to say? If I'm going to teach feelings, then, I don't know, maybe I'll become a philosophy professor or something like that. Berean integrity. The Berean Jews respectfully heard the truth from Paul. However, instead of simply accepting his words at face value, they took the time to examine the Scriptures for themselves. How long have I been saying this? Don't take my word for it. I want you to have your own convictions. Have I not said that? How many times, honestly? A billion times? Maybe not. Okay, I'm exaggerating. See, that's why. See? He's a liar. See, he said a billion. There's no way he did Bill. He'd be there all week, all month. <laughs> I want you to have your own convictions. 
especially when it comes to the gospel. Otherwise, if you're not like the Bereans, and you may think this is a joke, and you may say, that would never happen to me. But you might have a bumper sticker that looks like this. Oh, I'm serious. I'm serious. Coexist. You know, I was thinking about it. I don't even want to go over it again. I'm sickened by it. I was thinking about it. If there are cars in heaven and hell, There aren't going to be any cars with this on it in heaven. And there's going to be a whole bunch of them in hell with that on there. This is what we call bad religion. Learning to get along with each other is not the source of true peace and never the pathway to God. John 14, 6, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. That's man trying to hijack the true source by means of human works towards reconciliation with God. You mean if I'm good enough, I can... Look, reconciliation means to restore friendly relations with God. That's what it means theologically, okay? I'm such a good guy. I know what he said about Jesus. I know what the Bible says about Jesus. But I am such a good guy that he has to be friends with me. He has to reconcile me because I'm so friendly and I'm so nice. You get it? It's like uh, Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory. Remember the egg? Kid goes down in the hole. Nobody's seen that? It's evil. Don't watch it anyways. Man is famous for trying to hijack God's work of reconciliation. I'll be good. I'll be good for others. I'll even be good. I'll impart my goodness to others. Maybe they can get saved because it's my mom, it's my dad, it's my uncle. I really love these people, so God, just let me do a little work. I'm such a good guy. I'm such a good guy. Here, I'll do this thing. I'm sorry. There's, there are many of us who are going to go to heaven and possibly our children go to hell. That's a fact. And as much as we hate the very thought of that, that it's very upsetting, of course it is, The reality is, that's the fact. And you don't get to love your son or your daughter into heaven. They will stand or fall, either on their own deeds or Christ's on the cross. Those are the options. And mom and dad don't get to jump in and save their kids. That's bad religion. False gospels are the precursor to the ecumenical church, which is the great harlot in the book of Revelation. We ought never, ever stand for it. Go to 1 John 4.1. 1 John 4.1. So all of this has a direction. False gospel has a direction, obviously. And if you notice the false gospels, they're starting to sound a lot alike, aren't they? Yep. They'll give you God, but they won't give you Christ. That's how they sound alike. They want everybody to coexist, you see, in happiness and, you know, false peace. 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. 
False prophets mean teachers, folks. False teachers, that's what prophesizing means. It doesn't always mean, especially not now, speaking of future things. It means to teach. In that sense, I'm a prophet. In that sense, you're a prophet when you teach someone the Word of God. Do not be, or do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. Think of the Bereans. They didn't know Paul. They said, let's see if this guy's right. Let's see what the Scripture has to say, because the final authority is not a man standing by, behind a pulpit. I'm f- not infallible. I make mistakes. You have to seek truth. I can't seek it for you. So you should do the righteous thing. Whenever you hear anything claiming to be of God, whether in a church, I'm talking generally, in a church, on a bumper sticker, uh, on you know Sunday morning, you know, the gospel channel or whatever. You should check scripture. You should never take anyone's uh, wisdom as fact. You should always follow up on that thing. But mostly like, no way. That would, what? No way. That'd be way too much work. Oh, I'm sorry. You're missing uh, uh, L.A. Housewives or whatever that thing's called. What's it called? (laughs) I've never seen one. There's something about housewives in L.A. or something like that, right? Anyways, listen to your, your favorite show. It's, it's ridiculous, honestly. The people who say they can't make it to church, can't study the Word of God, they always have these excuses. Well, you know, I just don't feel like it. Or um, I'm sick. <coughs> For... Unbelievable, the excuses. <sighs> Go to Colossians 2.8. Colossians 2.8. Ooh, what a lesson this has been. See, they're even excited. <laughs> yeah. Colossians 2.8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. You know what philosophy is? But it feels right. That's philosophy. An empty deception. Go in what your gut feels about God. Jesus like You don't need to scream. Just whatever you think. You know, superimpose your experience onto the Bible and then find the right verses that support your experience instead of the other way around. Starting with the gospel. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. And we've had a lot of scripture given to us from the Spirit on what Christ thinks about the gospel. We have a personal responsibility to truth, each of us. A personal, and don't make that ridiculous thing, well, I support the church, so all the responsibilities on Pastor Ed or the ministry. No, that's disgusting. You're a wimp. You have a personal responsibility to the gospel. For us to propagate a convenient gospel is to contribute to the bedlam we now know as Christianity. 
we must be exceptionally careful that we aren't inadvertently widening the gate that leads to salvation. It's going to widen up a little bit. Here comes Uncle Jimmy. I'll hold it open. Thank you. Uncle Jimmy's in. Mom's in. My kids are in. So-and-so's in. No. This might be one of the most somber scriptures in the Bible. Is that fair? Matthew 7, 14, For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Well, that's... I don't know about you, but that's a bummer to me. That's very... It's a difficult pill to swallow, but like I said... Doesn't matter how I feel about it. Doesn't matter how I feel. Doesn't matter how some unbeliever comes in and says, Well, I feel that that's unjust. How does God create all these people and then send only some of them to heaven and the, most of them to hell? Or whatever the percentage might be. Any of them. I don't have the right to question the sovereign God. Doesn't matter what I feel. What I feel is garbage compared to God. And this is what I have to go on. This is why I teach it. Boldly, right? For reproof, exhortation, exhortation, encouragement, training, and what? Righteousness. You want to know the truth? That's the truth. If that's too harsh for you, I don't know what to tell you. If this is offensive to you or members of your family or whoever, then may I submit. Go to 1 Thessalonians 4.7. 1 Thessalonians 4.7. Some of you might even be saying, all right, this guy's running too long. I came here. It was going to be an hour and ten minutes. Max! Sorry, now I'm 25. My bladder's about ready to blow up. We'll stop coming to church every Sunday drinking too much. You slow learner. Maybe you should get the small cup instead of the jumbo glutton bucket with the extra shot of caffeine. Takes the extra buck and put it in the... Well, we don't even have baskets, but you know what I mean. Take the extra buck for the caffeine and put it in the, the, the donation box back there. If we have to make a bigger one, we'll make a bigger one. Anyways, you guys are funny. <laughs> Not funny looking, trust me. <laughs> That's far enough, mister. <laughs> uh, anyways, if it's offensive to you, then 1 Thessalonians 4, 7. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So, he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So in other words, I'm not offended. If you have a problem with the things that I, he's called me to teach, that's too bad. Then be a Berean and go back and figure out if I'm wrong. I'll be way too much. I'll just change churches. I'll just throw you under the bus. Okay, I'll stay. But I'm going to call my friend after church. Did you listen to him? I told, I, I'm with you. I don't agree with that at all. Should we go to Chili's for burritos? Or go study our Bible, I don't know, at the park or something. Let's go to Chili's. And let's talk some more about how so-and-so is wrong, or this or that. Let's not actually open our Bibles. Let's not actually take in all the grace. Let's just throw the one who's delivering it under the bus. Come on, those things, those blogs, they take at least five, ten minutes to read. You know, I can't read it when I'm in the line for Dunkin' Donuts order my coffee. It gets in the way. Right? 
It's the law that's the law. The law says I can't read and drive. Not my fault. If that law wasn't there, I would do it. I would do it. You know what, folks? The truth is always offensive to the flesh. So the Spirit's guidance on this has been up here on the board, and I'm almost ready to close, I promise. We've got to hit the crescendo, that's why. The Word is offensive to the flesh. If we aren't able to cling to truth in Scripture, such as we have directly in front of us, as it is plainly stated, then we open ourselves up to a wider gate to salvation than scripturally warranted. And that's the flesh. That would be an ungodly fleshly work to even propose or suppose that we could widen the narrow gate. Jesus Christ said, and he is the judge, said, it's narrow and few find it. What else do you want from a, from a message than the truth? But I don't feel good this morning. I'm sorry. I'm really not, but you know what I mean. I'm sorry that you don't feel good in the sense that you're, you might suffer a little bit knowing that your children are unsaved or your parents were unsaved or your best friend who died in a car accident last year was probably unsaved because they denounced Christ or whatever. Who knows? I'm sorry in that way that you're suffering in that way, but maybe that suffering is what he will use as motivation to get you off of your butts and study the Word of God. Now, I'm just going to pretend you never said that. I'm going to pretend that that convicting part of this morning's message, the one with the Berean thing, how do you say that again, the Bereans? How do you even spell that? I don't even know. How the heck, let's go to Chelly's. I'm going to pretend that never happened. I'm going to pretend that's for somebody else who's more learned than me. I Look, at I read about five words a minute. Good for you. That's how God created you. Read five words a minute then in your Bible. Philippians 4.13 says what? Through him all things are possible. So if you're a five-minute, a five-word-per-minute reader, guess what? He's still going to impart truth to you. So stop making excuses. But my tractor's broke, and I need to work on the roof at the house. What's more important, things that are perishing or things that are imperishable? What did Christ say? Buy from me gold refined by fire. What do you think he's talking about? He's talking about his word, things that have eternal value. But, you know, yeah, just keep going with your excuses. But please, do not look at me as if there's something wrong with me. I got, well, there is, but lots of things. But not on this. You know why? Because I'm standing on Scripture. And you know and I know that Scripture doesn't lie. Amen? All right, let's buy it. Once again, we don't have a video. That's the third week in a row, but we're too long. We're going too long. So this is the God's good work, okay? So it's not like I'm hijacking or saying we're never going to have music again. It's just we're going too long and he wants you to end on this note. Amen? Okay, one more thing. I'm just kidding. <laughs> like, Come on, you said amen twice. He's trying to loosen you up. Everybody's up tight. Let's bow our heads. 
I'd like to dedicate the closing moments of today's message to those who are without Christ and therefore are without hope. John 3.16 states, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. If you are indeed without Christ at this moment, know this, have faith in this, and embrace this as solemn truth. Acts 16.31, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. If you do believe that you need a Savior and you repent of your sinfulness, then accept the free invitation now that is Christ himself and be saved. If you've just believed for the very first time, I'd like to welcome you to the family of God. Father, thank you again for this morning's message, for giving us this time to fellowship together in the good name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. <clears throat> we thank you for this time, time that you set aside in eternity past, time meant to build up and edify the church. May the intended encouragement be held steadfastly by all here this morning, as well as those listening on the Internet. And may it motivate each of us in the face of assured resistance. May we also realize those times when we are under attack and be able to handle it by drawing near to you in time of need, as your precious word states. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lord, may you bless all traveling from this local assembly. It's in Christ's precious name that we pray by the, how, uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you.